Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you, Lisa, for that wonderful introduction. It's so exciting to be here at Harvard today. And we're gonna talk about how you can invent a happier you. It was uh, February of 1993, and my parents were desperate to find out if my wife and I were still alive. They had been glued to the television for several days. And on day three, they heard the county sheriff say that there was less than a 10% chance that we could have survived two nights in a raging blizzard in the Colorado mountains. And then on day four, my parents heard the sheriff say that the avalanche conditions were so high and it was too dangerous and they didn't want to be sending live rescuers after our dead bodies. And then on day five, the county sheriff said that they were calling off the search and our frozen bodies would be recovered the next spring. My wife and I had headed off with some friends to a backcountry cabin deep in the Colorado mountains. We were cross-country skiing there. And partway there, the weather changed dramatically, turned into one of the worst storms in Colorado history. Uh, it uh, trapped people in their cars on the mountain passes with avalanches. There were avalanches at the ski areas in places that they had never had avalanches before. And it threatened the water supply for the entire town of Aspen, Colorado. And so this massive storm was making the news all across the country. And when the news media heard about the lost skiers, the story went viral and millions of people around America were just like my parents watching the television hour by hour for any kind of report on whether we had been found alive. And then on that fifth day, when they were just about to call off the search, we actually made contact with the rescuers and we got out of the mountains. And that was, of course, reported live on the news as well and all across the country. We were both healthy, but my wife had severe frostbite on her hands and feet. So they put her in an ambulance and rushed her to the hospital in Aspen, Colorado. And I followed along moments later. And when I walked into the hospital at Aspen, the first phone call I got was from the president of the United States congratulating us on our perseverance and our survival. And over the next couple of days, I was on all the nightly news programs and all the morning television shows. And most of the interviewers asked the same question about how we had survived. What had we done to stay warm enough? We didn't have any tents. What we, had we done to, to have enough food, which we didn't have for five days? But on the Today Show, Katie Couric asked a different question. She asked me why we had survived. Why had we survived when so many others perish after just a single night in conditions like that in Colorado? And I knew the reason we had survived is because we were optimistic and resilient. And those are byproducts of having decided to live our lives as happy people, 
And I, you notice I said it's a decision. We had decided to live happy. And people say, well, optimism, that's where you see the glass is half full instead of half empty. But it's actually much more than that because sometimes in our lives, the glass is not half full. When the county sheriff said we had less than a 10% chance of survival, maybe he was right. Maybe the glass for us was only 10% full. But for us, it was never 90% empty. We only focused on that 10%, the positive part that we could do something with. And so that was our optimism that allowed us to see a future that we were gonna get out of the mountains just fine. And resilience is what allowed us to lay in the snow all night long, freezing and shivering so hard that I thought I was gonna crack a rib and then get up in the morning and put my pack on and put my skis on and break trail all day through the, the deep snow. And then again, the next night, lay out in the snow with no tent or sleeping not enough sleeping bags. And we did that day after day and night after night for five days. So it was that optimism and resilience that allowed us to, to persevere. And uh, the day after, or excuse me, the afternoon after the Katie Couric interview on the Today Show, I got back to the hospital to see Dee. And as I walked past the nurse's station, the nurse said, a few get well cards have arrived for you guys and they're right here. And she proceeded to hand me this giant box full of get well cards that arrived from people all over the country, friends and strangers had sent these cards. There were 50 cards in there from uh, hand-drawn and crayon-colored cards from kids in a local elementary school. Uh, there was a letter there from a prison inmate who saw our sort of second chance at life and made a parallel to the second chance he was gonna have when he got out of prison. And so we had all these cards and letters from all kinds of friends and strangers. And as I walked down the hall towards Dee's room to bring them to her, I heard a lot of noise coming from the hospital room. And I didn't know what it was, but as I opened the door, I saw Dee laying in her hospital bed. They're surrounded by about 15 or 20 of our friends. And everybody was hugging and happy and holding hands. And some people had tears of joy running down their face. And nobody had noticed me yet. And I just remember standing there in the doorway, looking at this scene and that late low angle winter sun was streaming in the window and giving the whole room this warm yellow glow. The room was filled with flowers and fruit baskets that had arrived. And the love that I could feel emanating from the room was just as real a thing as that yellow sunlight coming in and as the colors and fragrances of the flowers. And our friends had heard the sheriff say that we were dead and our bodies, frozen bodies would be recovered the next spring. And here we were, in a sense, back from the dead. And the point was not lost, not only on our friends, but on millions of people across America took the same lesson from it. And the lesson they took, oh, I think there were lots of parents that hugged their children a little tighter that night, and people that were reminded to tell the people in their life that are special that they love them, as everyone was telling Dee. And if me telling the story now reminds each of you to reach out to the people that are important in your own lives and tell them what they mean to you, then our, our struggle will certainly have been worth it. And as wonderful as that moment was, that kind of uh, collective uh, love that we had spread not only to our friends, but to strangers across America, that moment was really wonderful. But that goodness didn't last very long. 
because Dee and I were about to find out that our experience in the wilderness was really just a prelude to the real challenge that faced us. Um, the third night in the hospital, the doctors had pulled me aside and they had been examining Dee's feet for several days and her feet were coal black. They were as hard as this table here and her fingers were the same way. They were this ghastly blackish grayish color. Looked like you could snap them off like breaking a twig because they were frozen solid. And so the doctors pulled me aside and said gangrene was gonna be setting in and they had to amputate both of her feet to save her life so she didn't die from gangrene. And then they told me they would wait a few days till she recovered from that surgery and then they were gonna amputate all of her fingers as well. And somehow I staggered out of the hospital in a state of shock and managed to get in my car and drive home. And when I walked in the front door of our house, I saw Dee's running shoes there by the front door where she had taken them off after her last run. And my legs just turned to dust and I collapsed on the floor of our house right by the front door there. And I just lay there all night long crying uncontrollably. I was hugging myself in this fetal position and every now and then I would stop crying and open my eyes and I looked up and there were those running shoes right in front of me and I knew she would never wear them again and I just burst into tears again. And I spent the whole night long like that, just crying uncontrollably, feeling as powerless as I had ever felt in my life. You know, this terrible thing was about to happen to my wife the next day, and there was nothing I could do about it. But I woke up feeling unbelievably powerful, more powerful than I had ever felt. And I raced to the hospital before the doctors could talk to Dee. And I told her that she was going to have a complete recovery. And from that moment on, that's all both of us focused on was a complete recovery. And the critical thing we did in that moment is we decided again to be happy. And we didn't say we will be happy if she recovers or happy when she recovers. We just decided to be happy despite the circumstances of our life at that moment. And about an hour later, when the, the doctors came in, Dee and I were there laughing and having a great time in the hospital room and the doctors came in to prep her for the surgery and we refused to sign the papers authorizing the amputation surgery. And we just decided to depend on our optimism and our resilience and our happiness to create a different idea in mind for what we wanted for our life. And uh, we had been mentored by Tony Robbins for a number of years and that afternoon, Tony called Dee in the hospital and he talked to her about how to think about her recovery. And he sent her some uh, audio tapes in those days and some books from his friend Deepak Chopra about how our cells can regenerate themselves. So he, he did that with Dee. And then he talked to both of us about how we should focus on a compelling future for ourselves, not be totally in that painful moment that we were in, but think about the life going forward and come up with a compelling idea that would drive our lives forward. And then the last thing he told us was that the next year he was doing a new program, a 10-day life mastery, all of his best teachings over 10 days. And he invited us to come to that program and be his guests. So now we had a goal, which was to be at his program the next year. 
And we had a plan, which was to focus on this compelling future. And Dee had a strategy to think about how she was going to think about her healing. And I won't bore you with all of the medical drama, but she was 21 days in the hospital and then weeks and weeks at home with a nurse coming in for four hours a day, changing the bandings on each finger and each toe. And the entire time of that, we had this threat of the amputations hanging over our head, but we never, ever focused on it. We only focused on the positive. And over the course of almost a full year, uh, Dee's heels had been pink, but the rest of the foot was, as I said, cold black, frozen solid, hard as a rock. But day by day and literally millimeter by millimeter, more of her feet started to turn pink. And exactly a year after our ski trip, we went down to Mexico to join Tony Robbins and Dee was dancing in the sand on the beach in Cancun. And she had two feet and 10 fingers and nine and a half toes. So we had had a wonderful, wonderful outcome from our decision to be happy and our optimism and our resilience. And then a year after that day on the beach, we began to put in place that compelling future that we had thought about that very first day in the hospital. And we sold our home and we bought a sailboat and we set off to sail around the world. This is us on our boat halfway to Tahiti in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And I can tell you when you're on a sailboat in the middle of the ocean, there's few things in life that can make you feel more tiny and insignificant. You're a thousand miles from land, a thousand miles from maybe the nearest other human being besides the two of you on your boat. And you've surrendered yourself to the wind and the waves. You've essentially put yourself at the mercy of the universe. And yet, as tiny and insignificant as you feel there, you also feel connected to the entire universe. You know, your boat is floating on the water there between the sea and the star-filled sky, and you see every little glimmer of starlight up above you, and you feel the earth breathing with every wave that lifts your boat. And we had left from Florida, and one of our destinations across the Pacific was Australia, halfway around the planet. But the oceans could connect those two places. So the ocean and our sailboat and a little bit of wind could make a connection between Florida and Australia. And we, you have lots of time to think on the boat. It's going very slowly. And I begin to think so much about this idea of connection. And I had been a filmmaker in my former life. And filmmakers and authors and storytellers often refer to something called the red thread. And the red thread is the idea that ties all the parts of a movie or a film or a book. It, it's the thread that ties all these little pieces together. And with all this time we had on the boat, I came to understand the red thread of my own life. And my red thread is this. I believe our purpose here is simply to be happy. I believe our purpose here is to make ourselves happy and help other people find their own happiness. So that's my red thread and that's my why for being on stage before you today is to try and help other people find their happiness. And the red thread is the thread that ties together the three stories I've already told you. So that red thread led to our successful outcome of our ski adventure. And that red thread of deciding to be happy and optimistic led to the success of the uh, over, overcoming the outcome of D's diagnosis. And 
The red thread of that optimism and resilience, you can probably imagine those are pretty good traits if you're gonna encounter a storm at sea. And all of those things are byproducts of having made the decision to be happy. But really, as much as those things are wonderful to help you overcome the worst moments of your life, the reason to decide to be happy is to make all those other moments of your life much, much sweeter. And when you do make the decision to be happy, you add joy and love and gratitude to your life in a big, big way. And I can tell you today, of a 24-hour day, my waking hours, I the emotions I, where I live all day long are love and happiness and gratitude. And the emotions that you get rid of are anxiety and worry and self-recrimination. And I can tell you, I literally spend maybe a few hours a year in any of those negative emotions. So that's what you gain when you make this decision to be happy. And I'm not the first person to have this idea that our purpose in life is happiness. Aristotle, the greatest philosopher of all time, said happiness is the meaning and purpose of life the whole aim and end of human existence. More recently, the Dalai Lama, who we also heard about today from somebody else who has actually visited with him, the Dalai Lama said, I believe that every human being has an innate desire for happiness. And I also believe the very purpose of life is to experience this happiness. So that's my red thread and others throughout history from ancient times till now have thought the same thing. And let me explain to you why this is so critical to how we live and view our lives. And that's because the experience of our lives isn't what actually happens to us. It's how we think about what happens to us. The experience of our lives isn't what happens to us. It's how we think about what happens to us. And happy people think differently. So we had another woman with us when we were out on our ski trip, and she thought very differently than we did. And on the second day, she was ready to lay down in the snow and die. And I was out breaking trail in the front, and she was at the back, and she thought there was no point in continuing this because we were going to die. And she shrugged her pack off her shoulders and dropped it in the snow. And she continued skiing, but now she had no sleeping bag and no water bottle or food or any of her other warm clothes because she thought it was pointless. And she thought, well, I survived one night, but I'm never gonna survive another. And Dee and I thought completely differently. We thought we survived one night, we can definitely survive another night. And after we survived two nights, we said, we survived two nights, we can definitely survive four nights. So we were having the same physical experience, but we thought about it completely differently. And even after the event, and we were able, our optimism and resilience was enough to carry us all through. We all got out alive. But even afterwards, she had a different way of thinking about that same event. And she thought of herself as a victim. And she, after that, lived a very small, depressing life. And she passed away a few years later at a very, very young age. And Dee and I thought about it as we were victorious. We had overcome huge, huge odds against us, and yet we had not only survived, but thrived. And you can imagine for the rest of our lives, every challenge we have faced, we have faced with the belief that we're victorious and we can overcome it. So we all three had the same physical experience, but we had a completely different experience because happy people do indeed think differently.
So I've told you about how this optimistic viewpoint carried us through in front of huge challenges in front of us. And if you make this decision that you want happiness a part of your life and you practice some of the skills of happiness, you can change your life completely going forward. But not only that, you can change your past. You can invent a happier you. And I'm gonna, gonna tell you how to do that. When we uh, sold our home and moved on, our 2,800 square foot home that we lived in, and we moved on to a 300 square foot sailboat, we had to get rid of a lot of stuff. The space on a sailboat is very, very limited, very little bit of storage space. So anything we took with us had to help us live better on the boat or sail better or be safer. It had to be something that was gonna benefit our new life going forward. We just didn't have room for anything else that wouldn't help us in the future. And this, so we just got rid of a ton of stuff. And this metaphor of getting rid of stuff applies to all of our lives because we're all carrying with us baggage that doesn't serve us and is not gonna help us get to our future. And I, I actually started going bald when I was a young child and I've spent my life being bald and I wore a hairpiece most of my life because I thought it made me look better and it made me better in business and people like Corey and I, it wasn't fashionable to be bald 30 or 40 years ago. But I decided that I was gonna, unapologetically own who I was as we sailed away. And that very first day as we sailed away from the dock, I pulled off my hairpiece and I frisbeed it away over the stern of our sailboat. <laughs> and we can all do this same thing because we're all carrying baggage that doesn't serve us. And what I'm about to tell you, you know, there are some of it, people have very serious trauma in your past. And if you do, you need to get professional medical help, uh, med uh, psychological counseling to help you because this is not that. But we're all carrying some kind of baggage that's holding us back. And so here's a technique you can use to change not only your future, but your past. So think about that event, whatever it is that you're carrying around with you. And it doesn't matter whether your mom was mean to you or you failed some test in third grade or you got fired from a job or your sixth grade teacher told you you weren't smart or whatever it is. Think about that event but I want you to think about it in a new way. I want you to imagine you're in an airliner at 40,000 feet. And I want you to do this when you go home tonight. Don't try and do it right now, but do it when you go home tonight. Think about that event as if you're in an airliner at 40,000 feet and you're looking down and it's happening to somebody else. And you're gonna attach no emotional attachment to the event. And then make the event that you're watching black and white. And then make it a little blurry. So you don't have any emotional attachment to it. And now that you're a different person and you have tons more resources than you did when that event happened, start asking yourself better questions. And ask yourself better questions about what else could that event have meant? What else could, uh, what positive thing eventually came out of that event? Or at minimum, what lesson did I learn from it? And so keep asking yourself better questions until you either come up with something positive that happened or at least a life lesson that you learned from that event that has helped you. And now here's the critical thing. You're gonna go forward with that positive idea or that lesson you learned and you're gonna leave the pain behind. You've gotta leave the pain behind. So that's why you're looking at it from this dispassionate 40,000 feet. And now 
you're going to figure out a new story of the lesson you learned, and you're going to tell that story over and over and over in your head until that becomes the story of that event. And then when you're confident that that's the story of that event, I want you to stand up and breathe deeply. And I don't care if you're in a room by yourself or what, but say it out loud as if you're telling it to somebody else. And if you have told the story over and over in your life to other people, start telling the new story over and over again. And that's how you rewrite your past and invent a happier you. And so a couple things I want to uh, you know, just remind you that we've covered today, that happiness is a decision you make. It's not something that happens when you check all the right boxes in life. It's not something you pursue. It's a decision you make. And looking at the world optimistically will change every part of your life and your future. And you can invent your new story. So as I wrap up here today, I want to share with you one more thing, and it's, it's my superpower, and, but I'm willing to share it with all of you. And I have to admit, I've accomplished a lot of things in my life. I've been very intentional about my life. I've had a lot of good luck in my life, and I've had a lot of good strategies. And this is one of my strategies. And the things I'm most proud of in my life, I've been married to my best friend for 40 years, and she's sitting in the audience there. Hello, darling. And uh, I'm a, as I said, I've sailed around the world on my own sailboat. I'm a pilot. I've set an aviation record. I've been able to build multiple seven-figure businesses. I'm a mountain climber, and I was able to climb big mountains in the Himalayas and Alaska. So I've done all these things in my life because of this superpower I'm about to share with you. And I think this superpower is based on a memory we might all share. So as I describe it, if you have your version of this memory, I want you to envision that. And if you don't, just listen to my words and see if you can create this scene in your imagination. So go ahead and close your eyes for a moment, if you would. And <clears throat> my memory is when I'm about nine or 10 years old and I wake up on that very first morning of summer vacation. And I have the whole summer stretched out in front of me. And every day is going to be magical and wonderful. I have a million and one things and plans for the summer. And I, I know with that innocence of a nine-year-old child that all of them are going to come true. And we lived in the suburbs, so when I woke up in the morning, I could usually smell the through the open window the smell of somebody's fresh-cut lawn. They would have been out mowing their lawn early. I can hear the birds chirping outside the window. And then as I first opened my eyes, I see that bright, bright summer sun creeping in around the edges of the curtains of my bedroom. And I know when I wake up that every day is supposed to be fun and magical. And now if you have that image in your mind, I want you to go ahead and open your eyes. And my superpower is that I woke up that way this morning and I'm gonna wake up that way tomorrow morning. And you can all do exactly the same thing. You can wake up tomorrow morning knowing that the day is supposed to be fun and magical and you're supposed to do things that make you happy and that all of your dreams can come true. Thank you very much. And if you, if you want some happiness resources, there's a lot of free resources on my website to, to help you decide and practice the skills of being happy. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.